Hello and welcome to Med Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Diane Perkis, Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford and author of an enormous number of books, too many to name. Uh, we spoke today about one particular area of Diane's research, which is uh, fairies and witches and um, supernatural folklore of the British Isles in particular. Um, we started by talking about what fairy stories are, where they come from, uh, why they are so often focused around uh, childbirth and children and mothers, and what is it about child demons in particular that is so persistent cross-culturally, um, and what psychological purpose fairy stories seem to serve and also what practical service they seem to serve um we went on to talk about witches their relationship with fairies again why which which trials crop up at certain moments why people seem to be so drawn to the figure of the witch why at least in britain which is overwhelmingly uh female and also why these um traditions are so sticky why are people still so interested in reading about witches and fairies in fiction why are so many women still drawn to astrology and tarot and all of these um supernatural practices that extended version of the episode can be found at louiseperry.substack.com where you will also find bonus episodes uh the whole back catalogue of extended episodes and the mmm chat community enjoy many of you will know that Christianity is a subject of fascination for me and the role of Christianity in shaping the modern world is a theme I return to again and again on the podcast. My view is that we can't really understand ourselves or understand the world around us without getting to grips with it, which is why I'm very glad to put you towards a new online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, thoughtful, engaging. It assumes absolutely no prior knowledge. It's presented by the wonderful Glenn Scrivener, who has been a guest on the MMM podcast previously, and I've also been a guest on his show. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions, which are based around some beautiful animated stories that illustrate the Christian message. You can check it out for free at 321course.com forward slash MMM. Just enter your email, choose a password, and you're in. There's no spam, there's no fees. Just visit 321course.com forward slash MMM. Uh, Diane, let's start by talking about fairies. And I suppose we should probably start by um, defining a fairy or at least laying out what are the what are the key characteristics of fairies that we consistently see in fairy stories? That, I think, is where the problems begin, because as soon as we start trying to define the fairy, we're going to find ourselves entangled in some quite different kinds of national, local and ethnic mythologies to which the term's been applied. So I'm going to give a quick example, which is the wonderful Kitsune myth in Japan. Kitsune are now often described as fairies. Another way to describe the kitsune is a part-time fox and part-time woman with supernatural agency. So right away, we need to kind of ask ourselves, is it appropriate to say kitsune are fairies? Or is it a kind of uncomfortable cultural appropriation? Fairies derive, the very word fairy derives from a French word, fae. Um, and so there's a sense in which we're now rather high-handedly announcing that other cultures also have exactly the same kind of entity. Therefore, in defining fairy and being a bit careful about that, I'm going to suggest that we refer solely to the British Isles and Northern Europe, 
um, in our initial endeavor, in which case a fairy is a being who's almost immortal, um, generally human-like in shape and appearance, tends to live in or be associated with non-arable nature, doesn't tend to live on farmland, sometimes lives in orchards, sometimes lives in woodlands, but doesn't live on a wheat field. Um, so it's all a bit negative when I put it like that. Um, this is a being that has knowledge and capabilities that human beings don't have, including typically an ability to foretell the future, an ability to locate buried treasure, some knowledge of healing, and crucially, a lengthy historical knowledge drawing on the fact that they live for much longer than human beings do. Another way, though, to describe them, and this would be closer to the kind of fairy that we meet all the time in the Scottish Highlands, would be to say that the fairy is a special category of the dead. That fairies are those dead people who are taken to, by death before their due time has elapsed. So not people who die at three score years and ten, but people who die in battle, people who die in childbirth, babies who die at birth or who are still born, that category of people seem also likely to crop up in fairyland and to act as fairy guides to human beings. So despite the fact that we might initially kind of think of fairies as a benign kind of supernatural, in this Scottish culture in particular, they do have associations with the dead and particularly with the restless dead. There's a category of the dead that doesn't want to stay dead and wants to still be up and doing things. As uh, an, uh, an origin story for fairies in the British Isles that you write about, which is um, sadly probably not true, but is a lot of fun to think about, is that fairies are ancient Britons, that these were... Um, uh, uh, stories that emerged about, you know, these sort of small and strange people driven driven into the hills um, by uh, various invaders, you know, Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, whoever it might be. Um, do you think there's any possibility of that being true? No, not really. Pity, but no. Um, one of the reasons I, I tend as a folklorist to resist stories that give a naturalistic explanation for things um, they they make a lot of sense to us, but they're another way in which we, in our 21st century way, think that we have answers that make us superior to people in the past, and they kind of erase people in the past's idea of what was going on. But th there's a kernel, perhaps, in it, which is the one I mentioned, that the fairies may, at least for some people in the Celtic language-speaking parts of Europe may have represented some kind of heroic group of past ancestors like warriors um, or prophets or, or just the child dead of that era. And in that sense, there may be some overlap between fairy belief and an interest in the past. And the other connection we could make that maybe is relevant here is just that all those peoples also tend to associate fairies with what they call wraths, and we tend to call Neolithic monuments. So if you've got an arch, a dolmen in your area, um, 
or a nice Neolithic barrow tomb like Wayland Smithy, which is about 10 miles from where I'm speaking from. One way to think about those places is to think that they might be places where fairies live. And the assumption is therefore that fairies might be the people who built them and therefore might be our ancestors. The, the other kind of folkloric explanation for sites like that tends to be that they're built by giants. Um, so you can take your choice, but the tendency is to look at the landscape and say, this is odd, this doesn't look like the kind of thing we would build or the kind of thing we would want. So therefore, there's something unknown here. Let's try to frame a story around that. Um, you also write about the connection between uh, fairy stories of the British Isles and um, uh, pagan stories. There are very striking parallels. What? Why do you think that might be? I think that there are some instances in Gaelic-speaking Scotland, Gaelic-speaking, as they would say, um, particularly stories preserved in folklore, stories preserved in witch trials, where it's very clear that the storytellers are knowledgeable about the kind of legendarium and imaginarium that we associate with the Celtic other world that pretty much gets proscribed by Christianity, um, but that evidently remains an imaginative presence. Um, it's worth noting at this point that, for example, Finn McCool, who's an Irish and also a Scottish hero, um, has a fairy wife, for instance. It's part of his story. It's part of his biography. Um, so in that sense, fairy beliefs and stories about fairies often are a place where there's a kind of surviving cultural residue that's otherwise been erased deliberately in order to cater for Christianity. And that becomes more problematic after the Protestant Reformation, because Protestants, and unfortunately, particularly Scottish Protestants, are especially down on any pagan survivals. Indeed, one of their objections to Catholicism is that it has pagan survivals mixed in. So what might have been a kind of acceptable compromise in the 10th century becomes an intolerable and scary intrusion of something increasingly labelled as just straightforwardly diabolical by the time people are being tried for witchcraft in 1570. So you see this kind of sometimes uneasy coexistence of, um, yes, what we might call pagan residue, these fairy very, very ancient fairy stories, which um, are coexisting for a very long time with Christianity. And are sometimes intention, but not necessarily. I mean, what are the, how how does the church reconcile itself with the, the, the stickiness of very old fairy stories? It has two methods, which it uses in different periods. Um, the first method it uses is just debunking it as a lot of rubbish that only old women would say. That's pretty much the church's response up to round about the middle of the crusading era. So you have Burkhard of Worms talking about the women who fly with Diana, which is who's a figure that we could tentatively associate 
as a queen of the wild with the fairy queen. Um, but Burkhard doesn't want to round them up and execute them or even question them. He just wants confessors to tell them that they're being silly and that their belief that they're doing that is a delusion. That's obviously pretty radically different from the kind of response that a story like that would get from a Calvinist preacher in the Church of Scotland by 1620, where if you told a story like that, how you'd flown through the night, the said Calvinist speaker would preacher would immediately conflate that with the idea of the witch's Sabbath and would suggest that you were actually flying to meet the devil. And um, so that kind of um, set of interpretations that's all about re completely rejecting anything that has even a trace of paganism and, and extirpating it violently is something that isn't part of early Christianity but becomes a vital part of later Christianity and is the reason that many women and a few men too are executed. But the stories stick nonetheless, right? I mean, we even uh, now, I, I looked up some polling on the proportion of people in Britain who still believe in um, um, spirits and ghosts and fairies, and it's really, really high. <laughs> it's know. really interesting. A question I often ask when I do a lecture is, I often ask everyone in the room who believes in fairies to put up their hand, and usually it's sort of something under a quarter. And then I ask everyone in the room who believes there's life on other planets to put up their hands usually the percentage then rises to something like 80%, sometimes everyone, depending on the context. And I then point out there's exactly the same amount of evidence for each of them, i.e. none. <laughs> well, except for, I suppose, uh, eyewitness accounts. Um, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, another secret is that every time I do a lecture, someone approaches me afterwards and says they've seen a fairy. Uh, my husband kind of believes in ghosts. I, I tease him about this and he, he, he refuses to be teased. It's but that you're it, willing to associate ghosts with fairies because you're right that actually the idea of ghosts as disembodied, able to pass through walls, you can't touch them, you can't take hold of them, that's actually more recent than fairy beliefs by quite a long way. That kind of ghost is really mostly a product of the post-Enlightenment world. It's a Victorian ghost if it's transparent, like they frequently are in films of Hamlet where you can just sort of, he can't touch his father. Um, earlier periods, ghosts were really less frequent than revenants. Revenants are kind of more like we would think of vampires as this kind of creature. Um, they, they hop out of their graves, they're physical. Um, they have bodies. Um, if they don't have a permanent body, they take somebody else's body and possess that. They don't just sort of drift around the place. I suspect your husband probably believes in the disembodied kind. <laughs> he refuses to elaborate, so I can't be sure. But, but I mean, it, it clearly is. It's well. This is presumably the reason why it is so incredibly sticky. That a, a very large proportion of people have a, an instinctive belief in the enchanted world in some fashion, um, which can obviously be expressed in lots of different ways. But it, it doesn't seem to take very much. Um, for people to believe in these kind of supernatural spirits and also for them to, to be um, associated with particular uh, life stages, particular phenomena. Um, you mentioned already about childbirth and children and stillbirth has been a particular, uh, a, a, 
a part of life to which fairy stories and ghost stories and all sorts of sort of supernatural ideas tend to accumulate and also tend to be oddly consistent cross-culturally or at least consistent across um pagan and um celtic stories well i think part of that is part of the stickiness that you're talking about is that these figures and the stories about them help us manage human feelings um and for example when thinking about the restless dead actually it's our own restlessness that we're partly referencing and we know that the stages of grief include denial and anger and so one of the things that happens when we think about the dead as not lying still in their graves is that we're talking about our own sense of denial our own inability to believe that this person who was here a minute ago can be gone now um and and often people who are bereaved have this feeling that the the dead person's in the next room or that the dead person's still with them really and they find it very hard to reset um to the absence of that person and similarly with rage and the next stage of grief is anger um and it's very common in stories about revenants to see the dead as furious with the living um indeed there's a, a particular kind of fairy related emanation called the furious horde which is this body of um dead individuals who appear at particular times of year characteristically round about midwinter um either side of the solstice um and they they are scary they are warriors they are battling they are sometimes then assumed to be in hell really even if we can see them but they're also violent figures and um they are the reason we have to take our christmas decorations down by 12th night in case you've ever wondered i didn't know i will attend to that more closely this year um can we talk about seriously the one time i didn't do it i broke my leg in three places that year <laughs> um can we talk about child demons um because um i i always feel when uh, when reading about folklore um it is it is like imagine the darkest thing you can imagine and then times it by 100 folklore is so grim and is and is dealing with such like such depths of human um misery and terror and i don't think that's any more notable than in child demons which are a recurrent theme in folklore um in modern horror films too yes yeah um why do you think it is that um child demons are so are so omnipresent in folklore we should probably distinguish between different kinds of child demon um and for one thing we have the changelings since we're talking about fairies where the the replacement fairy baby is like the absolute poster child for being the worst behaved baby ever in that it cries incessantly it won't eat it won't sleep it loses weight instead of gaining it um it's hard not to believe that this might not at least partially speak to the experience of having a very difficult baby perhaps in very difficult circumstances that i don't know whether you've had children but there are times when they all seem like that 
<laughs> um, yes. My yes, sister-in-law yes. <laughs> once wonderfully said to me shortly after I'd had my first child, there were times with my first child where I could have thrown her out the window. Um, and I think the changing myth speaks to that, speaks to the fact that your life's been invaded by a screaming stranger. Um, it feels massively more powerful than you are. In, in actuality, of course, you are more powerful than a baby, but it doesn't feel that way at the time. And you feel that you're completely out of control of the situation. So why not have a story whereby the uncontrollable aspect of the baby can be split off and demonized and you can keep in your heart and head the image of the perfect baby you ought to have had that you really deserve, the one that isn't screaming in your face and turning black with rage? So the changeling is the, 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 the fake baby that the fairies have left with you and and, and somewhere else is your baby who would of course be perfectly behaved and wouldn't be screaming at you now um i can't remember where it is in france but you write about this particular sort of this is st Ginfo, right yeah yes yes and and yeah um, it, that must have been such an amazingly comforting though obviously incredibly risky and scary ride that you got to leave your crying baby in the woods while a candle burned down. I mean, who doesn't want to leave their crying baby somewhere for at least a bit and not have to hear that sound? Um, and then for it to be framed as productive, that you're doing this to help your real baby, that you're not doing it because you're a bad mother. Just the opposite. You're doing it heroically because you know that this is the best way to help your child. So is that. But then separately, the other kind of demon we should maybe talk about is the stillborn child, the child that's never been named. I mean, nowadays, thanks to charities like Tommy's, there's actually much more of a move to acknowledge stillborn and even miscarried children and name them and have a proper grieving process. But back in the day, not so much. And indeed, Christianity kind of particularly tended to discount the nameless child because it hadn't been christened. It was kind of going nowhere or limbo at best. So there's not only an immediate loss, but kind of an eternal loss to be dealing with. And then that sense that, again, why would this entity be satisfied? Why would this being that's never been allowed any kind of a life, let alone three score years of ten, and ten, just go into the dark silently? If they're out and about, what kinds of things might they want? Might they want you? might they want to reoccupy the centrality in your life that they should have had. And that's another kind of child demon. And and the, the other thing with child child demons that we should probably reference is just that we as a culture now particularly have an especially ambivalent attitude to children because we, and this probably tracks quite well with late medieval, early modern child rearing, we want our children in some respects to behave like adults. We want them to plan their lives the way adults do. We tend to want them to think about extracurricular and CV building the way adults do. But we also, in some respects, therefore find them endlessly frustrating because, of course, children don't think about those things in that kind of way. Um, and further to that, there's something kind of eerie and uncomfortable about our insistence that children replicate and act on their parents' desires. And since very few children are going to do that naturally, 
there's an awful lot of discomfort around the figure of the child that isn't what I expected, what I wanted, that just has something a bit the matter with it, that's somehow a bit of an outsider. Am I still on their side or am I fighting against it? I think one area where we're seeing this particularly fought form, in particularly fought form, is the current gender wars about transgender children who are to some extent being treated like changelings. Mm. That's so interesting. I, I, and also, isn't there a connection, some people think, between um, changelings and autism, that it's possible? Could you, could you explain what that theory is? This is a hypothesis. Again, it's one of those naturalistic hypotheses. Is it that having an autistic child would make you feel as if you had a changeling child. For what it's worth, I have an autistic child, so personal experience is going to have to weave in here. thing is, because it was my first child, I had no idea because I didn't really have much of a sense of how a baby might ordinarily behave. So the fact that my child didn't like being cuddled didn't sort of make me think, oh, must be autistic then. Um, and in fact, successive tests didn't diagnose it, or, or that's also quite common. Um, so my sense is that for me, that probably doesn't explain it. Although having said that, my first baby was much more difficult to manage than my probably more neurotypical second child. But you know, being me, I blame myself. Um, I thought it was my fault. Um, and this is a reminder that changelings can be grown ups too. Um, that there's a horrific case in Ireland of um, a man who believed his wife had been fairy taken um, this is in the 1890s, and who resolved to burn the changeling to death in what he afterwards claimed was an effort to bring back his wife. I could probably have got behind that faster than the idea of you know, sitting my child on red hot coals to see if the fairies came back for the child. Uh, yeah, the... Uh, well. I mean, this is, I suppose, a moment maybe to talk about the, the psychological purposes that fairy stories tell um, serve, because they serve um, multiple purposes. I mean, as you were, um, you mentioned earlier about the, um, is it is it Sanguineforts in France, um, where women would come if they believed them, they believed they had a changeling baby, would come and leave the baby um, alone and then come back, and either sometimes the baby would have died, or the or they would believe that the baby had been changed and, the, and well, the changeling had been returned to the fairies and their real baby had been brought back to them. You know, one of the functions, as you say, that that, that, that kind of myth serves is as a, a, a an excuse for indirect infanticide. Exactly. Simili but but yes. also an excuse for the feelings that are leading to infanticide. And um, one of the pressures on mothers to this day is the demand that mothers must absolutely and unequivocally love their children and find them fascinating and, and endlessly want to be with them. And any kind of sense, for example, that you might be longing to get back to work is pretty much denigrated. Um, so in that way, it, it's ourselves who always come up short and, and therefore to have a licensed way of saying this isn't working out between me and my baby but I'm determined to make it work out was probably very positive because even now mothers are relatively powerless for that matter so are fathers in the scheme of things, if they think there's something the matter with their child, it's very difficult actually to get people to take it seriously. And, and it leads uh, another kind of maybe contemporary example that's relevant 
is the panic about vaccinations, um, and particularly the MMR MMR scan um, scam that um, because that again connects with autism. We actually don't know what causes autism, and so we can run riot making all kinds of suggestions ranging from fairies to vaccines. Anything indeed that intrudes into something that we feel ought to be solely ours. So the vaccine thing is you know, medicine interfering in my family or a needle being placed inside my baby's arm. When you contemplate these things, they're scary in a similar way to I put my baby to sleep and he seemed normal and then he woke up and he seemed like a crazy demon. Mm-hmm. And also, um, uh, even if it's not comforting, I suppose in a period when you don't have um, medical explanations available for very high levels of infant mortality, similarly to believe that, say, you know, the, a child demon um, of a stillborn baby is responsible for taking your baby, you know, for 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 other child deaths because of its voracious desire to avenge its own death or, you know, whatever it is. It's not comforting per se, but it is at least an explanatory framework that's available. And theoretically, you can, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, people don't sort of pray to, to, to the child demons per se, but you can, well, are there ways, are there, are there things you can do um, to try and appease these demons? Well, less and less as Protestantism unfurls. And one of the things that's fairly consensually agreed now is that Protestantism takes away a lot of agency from the laity in return for a sort of intellectual coherence. So in medieval times, you could, for example, go on pilgrimage or you could, for example, make a donation, if even if you didn't have very much money, and burn a candle or you could, if you liked, embark on a special series of prayers like a novena. But in Protestantism, it's mainly about accepting the will of God and not questioning it or even thinking about it, but just acknowledging it. So, I mean, there's a lovely Ben Johnson poem on the death of his first son, where he actually criticizes himself for grieving instead of accepting that his son was bound to die because his son didn't ever really belong to him in the first place. And that's really harsh and kind of horrible. And I think if I were in that situation, I'd probably go with the fairies instead because it's a little bit more sympathetic. There's a little bit more leeway for the human. Mm. And you can just about slot these fairies into a Christian framework if you think of them as being allied with um, the devil or whatever, right? It's not, it's not entirely heretical to to um, appeal to fairy stories if you're if you're Catholic at a certain era. I think I think actually the medieval church was much more tolerant of the idea of fairies is not that shocking than Protestantism became. Protestantism decided that fairies were really just devils. Um, and that therefore people who said, as they fairly frequently did in Scottish witch trials, that they'd had dealings with the fairies were actually just Satan worshippers and were trying to sort of put a gloss over it. Um, obviously, that is, in many respects, a profoundly unappealing look on the part of the prosecution, that you're taking someone who profoundly believes that they're having dealings with the fairies and telling them that they're completely wrong, not because they're mistaken, not because they're superstitious, but because you have a different set of superstitions to theirs. Um, it, it's just not a very good look. And that, yeah, there are people who are clearly 
piecing out a living by making the claim that they have special connections with the fairy world that they can use to help the community or that they can use to help individuals. And in an era where virtually nobody could afford a doctor and wouldn't do much good if you could afford it, it's actually quite comforting to have these guys come around and say, look, you know, what we can do is we can go visit the, you know, the devil's acre and, and I'll have a chat with him and see if I can straighten something out. Um, or, Actually, yes, your baby did die, but in fact, it's with the Queen of the Fairies. And that in a way, that's maybe better. But then sometimes I suppose the, the, the locals will turn on these figures. And is that sometimes what's going on with these witch trials, that something's gone wrong in these transactions? The issue is then the very fact that some people claim to have such powers becomes an object of terror to other people. Um, and in a way... Service magicians, as Ronald Hutton's now calling them, or cunning folk, as I actually prefer that term, um, as they used to be called, kind of generate their own problem. Because they tend, when they come round to your house, to explain that your baby has been witch bewitched, um, to target other rival cunning people in the neighbourhood. So they tend to say the reason your baby is sick is because Mother Shipton overlooked the baby. Um, or Mother Shipton, who has dealings with the fairies, is threatening to exchange your baby for special magical powers with the fairy queen. And so they're actually generating, regenerating even, a, an endless sort of supernatural series of explanations for things, which ultimately comes to entrap them too. That said, we should also remember that there are many cases in the Scottish witchcraft record and also in the English one, where people actually volunteer that they are witches, even when there isn't a witch hunt. And the two, one case that strongly involves fairies is the amazing Isabel Gowdy, who is a Scottish witch from 1660, who appears to come forward of her own accord to tell the local magistrates about her amazing trips to fairyland. Now, it's impossible to reconstruct why she might have done that, but we should probably bear in mind how nice it must have been to have the magistrates listening to her. And this is someone who from the reconstructions that historians like Emma Wilby have done, probably couldn't have got the magistrate's attention ordinarily, but who is able, by describing this richly populated, complex fairy world with a fairy queen, they're always matriarchal, um, and, and a fairy king and elf bulls and at least 12 different spirits whom she names, yet to hold the whole court in, in trance. We don't know what happened to her. We don't know whether she was executed. We do know that she probably also had some Catholic allegiance in the mix, which can't have done her much good. But for some reason, she wanted to tell this story. It wasn't dragged out of her by torture. She wasn't pressured into telling it. She wanted to tell the story. And I think that also tells us something important about the work these stories were doing. Doubtless she and other fairy cunning folk had told these stories many times before to rapt listeners. I mean, it must have been thrilling to sit around the peat fire and listen to someone like Andrew Mann telling the story of his 25-year relationship with the Queen of the Fairies and the children they'd had. And and what the other dead people that he'd seen in the fairy ride, like the king who died at Flodden. Um, and it would make anybody's eyes sparkle on a cold winter night and must have given mutual pleasure. 
What happened to this particular woman after her confession? What happened to um, Isabel, we don't know. Yes. Andrew was executed. Um, so, I mean, you would, it was a daft thing to do. It was almost suicide. Um, we very often don't know the end of the stories of witches because our documentation tends to be fragmented into different categories. But what we can say is that it's not straightforwardly the case that you have an enthusiastic bunch of witch hunters and a cowering bunch of witches. It's a more complex relationship than that. Let's talk more about uh, witches. Although, can I first, before we do, you mentioned briefly that um, fairyland is matriarchal. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, the queen of the fairies is always the boss. Um, but there is no account of fairyland um, in which fairyland is straightforwardly ruled by a king. Um, one of the reasons that, as most people will know, Elizabeth I really glommed to the image of the fairy queen and it was massively bolted onto her by her poets and courtiers was because people already understood that the fairy kingdom was a matriarchy. Um, female fairies appear strikingly more often in all sources than male fairies. There are male fairies, to be sure there are. Um, they tend to be dark and scary in a different way, and we can come back to that. But it's female fairies who appear to have unsocial elements um, of autonomy and um, authority, and they're also able, and you can decide whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, they're able to take young mortal men back to fairyland to serve them, quote unquote, for seven years. I somehow think that probably doesn't mean a book club or a political discussion group. Um, particularly in Andrew Mann's case, he describes himself as doing this and immediately speaks of the children they've had, um, just to bear that out. So this is somebody who, um, in Isabel Gowdy's words, um, it will lie with whom she lists, um, can, can make her own choice as to who she wants to be with. This is pretty outrageous stuff in 1600. Um, and moreover, she has immense magical capabilities in all versions of the story. So that's why I say the fairies are a matriarchy. Do you think there's a sense in which um, that, that fact of, it, of fairyland being a matriarchy is a sign of it all being the wrongness of it, the topsy-turviness of it? It's a sort of further evidence of its strangeness. Definitely, definitely true. Um, and moreover, the Queen of the Fairies is not usually straightforwardly positively portrayed. And the portraits of Elizabeth as the Fairy Queen even actually contain significant criticism of her as well as enthusiasm. Um, the Fairy Queen is usually understood to be scarily predatory. Um, she wants young men. She wants babies. If she wants babies, it's because she wants to grow them on and make them into young men later. Um, so she's got that sort of sexually predatory aspect to her that never really goes away. It's certainly present in even in Shakespeare's Titania, which is probably meant to be a little bit airbrushed. Um, and fairy men the same. I mean, there are many stories of predatory fairy knights. My favorite is Sedegare, um, which is a story which looks like it's going to have a happy ending and then swerves immediately. So this is the story of a lovely young girl who's um, lost in the woods and she comes across a fairy knight, hurrah. Um, and he says, yeah, you're so beautiful. I've watched you for many long years. 
I want you to be my lady and my beloved. And she says, um, well, maybe not right now. Could you take me home first? And he says, no, no, you don't get to say that and promptly rapes her. So again, it's not, it's not a pretty story. It's a story in which the fairies in both male and female forms represent an entitled aggregation that maybe we might associate with the upper classes of the time. You you write that um, it's a recurrent thing that young women will say if they have been um, made pregnant outside of wedlock that they will say I was I was basically I was raped by the king of the fairies and it's a it's a mysterious statement um is it a way maybe of of explaining uh, explaining rape without having to name the perpetrator or, or or is it something that maybe actually raper said that it was a that it was so sort of it was so in the air with folklore that both victims and perpetrators would would I love the idea that rapists might have said it, because there is there is a there is a tradition of people who are suddenly caught by law enforcement authorities claiming that they're servants of the Queen of the Fairies. Um, that it, it's like saying I'm no name, as Odysseus does. Um, so I think that's an intriguing possibility. But it's also, as you rightly say, a way, way of not naming the baby's father if you don't want to. And one reason why you might not want to is given very clearly in the ballad Tamlin, where Janet, whose um, dubious consent sex with Tamlin leads to pregnancy, um, her father's immediate reaction is to say, I'll get you married to someone, I'll marry you to one of the lords in my hall. And she says, I, I, none of the lords in your hall will get the baby's name. So in a way, this whole rigmarole about Tamlin and Carter Whore and, and him turning into a bar of red hot iron, among other things, gets her out of having to marry the first lord her father suggests and, and gives her back a degree of freedom. Mm. So it's again this... this um fairy stories serving useful purposes theme yeah and we also know that the places associated with fairies would have been very unsafe for women places like forests and roads and crossroads um places like open heathland and those are places that are like long dark alleyways in modern cities um and it, it it probably is also the case that retelling these stories is a way of warning women that places like that are unsafe. And indeed, Tamlin, the ballad I mentioned a minute ago, starts with a warning. I forbid you maidens all that wear gold in your hair to travel to Carter Hall because there's a rapist. Um, returning to witches. Um, so first, what, what, is the, what is the relationship between the witch and the fairy? Witches um, in many parts of the British Isles want to give some explanation for where their powers come from. And the way everyone seeks this, theologians also want that. So one kind of explanation that some witches choose to give is the explanation that their powers come from other supernatural entities, 
And two kinds of ferries crop up in this respect. The first is the kind of ferries we've mostly been discussing, the mythological ferries that live in fairyland separately and that have links with the dead and that are a bit scary and a bit rapey and maybe overwhelmingly beautiful and seductive as well. But the other kind that we haven't mentioned yet is the household fairy, often called the hob, the hobgoblin or the brownie. Um, and this is a fairy that lives in your house with you. Um, and it's hairy um, and it never wears any clothes and it does the housework for you, also some farm work. Um, and you reward that fairy by putting out a bowl of cream every night, a bit like a cat. Um, and indeed it's been suggested by Emma Wilby that the holy English tradition of the fairy familiar, the idea of the, that all witches are accompanied by a small animal that actually does their will and does the actual magic, does the heavy lifting, if you like, might actually derive from this general European idea of a household fairy. Um, virtually every culture has one. Um, in in um, Scandinavia, they're often called, um, particularly associated with Christmas, they're called the Nyssa, um, and there are Russian examples uh, as well. Um, and, and it's just interesting because, again, this is about a certain generation of theologians reinterpreting these beings as demons rather than as morally ambivalent domestic helpers. And they are tricky. If you get it wrong with them, they can turn into poltergeists, basically. The things you must never do include thank them and give them clothes. Like in Harry Potter with yeah. the, um, the house yeah. elves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, J.K. Rowling's fairy lore all comes from Catherine Briggs's A Dictionary of Fairies. Um, you can actually track all of it back to that one book. Um, and am I right that witches also have this very close relationship with um, domesticity, but in a negative way. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, paid subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my Substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a paid subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs>